Um, and I think we can. I think we can create Ireland as a, the world leader in this space. And if we do, the world will beat a path to our door. I mean, I was in um, I was in Tunis last week, and I spent three days training the Libyan government on diaspora engagement. Uh, just before that, I, I was in Lithuania, um, running a course for the Department of Foreign Affairs there to train their embassy staff and their ambassadors into this area. Um, you know, there's just lots of places trying to figure this one out, and we are recognised as being good in this space. Welcome to the Chasing Passion podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing it. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. In this week's episode, we're joined by Kingsley Aikens, who's the founder and the CEO of the Networking Institute. The Networking Institute is a Dublin-based organization whose mission is to help individuals and organizations achieve their goals through networking. He's a recognized expert on the topic and has written and spoken extensively on the benefits of networking and how to actually become better at it. He has run workshops and developed online and offline training programs in the areas of networking, public speaking, philanthropy and diaspora engagement. You can find more information about the Networking Institute on thenetworkinginstitute.com. So that is thenetworkinginstitute.com. So give that a Google have a look at the website it's very valuable if you want to grow your career as a professional and just want to learn about networking i would highly recommend checking it out to date he has trained over 10,000 people in more than 100 organizations in just over 22 countries his clients include major accounting firms consulting law non-profit and government organizations he's an economics and politics graduate from trinity college dublin and his career consisted of working 10 years for the Irish Trade Board and IDA Ireland, and that was based in Sydney. And he then went on to lead the Ireland Funds for 21 years, and that was mostly based in Boston. In his time with the funds, over a quarter of a billion dollars were raised for projects in Ireland, and he was awarded a CBE award for his British and Irish relations. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss his previous work, diaspora engagement, importance of soft skills, how to network effectively, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Kingsley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So I guess the first question I have for you is who you are, what do you do, and what are you all about? So I'd love to know, like, what's your story and what kind of stuff were you involved in in your career? Okay, well, that's a quick, short answer to start. Uh, so my name is Kingsley Aikens. I'm from Dublin, Ireland, um, and uh, born educated here, school, college here. Uh, actually, after college, I did a slightly zany thing. I went off and played rugby for a season in France. Um, I got a bit mashed up and, and uh, with my knee, and I, I had to pack up rugby, but... Uh, it was a good, a very interesting experience. It was a tough experience. Um, then I went and worked in London for a few years, and then I joined the Irish Export Board. It's, it's now called Enterprise Ireland. Um, put my name down for a posting, and I always remember the day there was five cities up for grabs on this day, and you're not allowed to choose where you go for your posting. Um, you have to go wherever they send you. Uh, and the five cities they were choosing on that day to send somebody to were Moscow, Sydney, Lagos, Glasgow, and then the glamour posting, Limerick, right? So uh, my name came up, so it's Sydney, Australia, 
Um, and I basically said, listen, guys, when your country calls, you know, you got to do put your body on the line. And off I went and I spent eight years in Sydney. It was a wonderful experience. Um, it was a great job. So I represented the Enterprise Ireland, or it was called Chorus Troctola, the Irish Trade Board back then. And um, an IDA Ireland, the Inward Investment Agency for Ireland. So um, I, I spent that time there, loved my experience in Australia. Actually met my wife, who's from Ireland, but we got married and married in Kangaroo Valley in Australia. And um, when, I, when I arrived in Sydney, um, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know a single person in Australia. But like all good mums, my mum had a neighbour who had a son in Sydney called Paul McCulloch. And she said, look, you should ring him and look him up. I looked him up and I asked him, could you introduce me to the local Irish business network in Sydney? And he said, there isn't one. So I said, well, why don't we set one up? So we set it up and there was 13 of us at the first event. And because I used to play rugby and the other other people did, and they, were, well, they, were, they weren't all men, but most of them were in those days, um, we called it the Lansdowne Road Club. Ireland used to, used to play rugby in Lansdowne Road. Still does. And... Um, we had this first event with 13 people and, and the organization grew and grew and grew. And um, I went back last year. They invited me back because it was 30 years after the start of that first event for their annual St. Patrick's Day lunch. There's 2000 people there. It's now the biggest Irish business event in the world on wow. St. Patrick's Day. But it started from zero. And I'm a great fan of this notion that, you know, nobody started a large organization. Nobody started a large company. Nobody started a large entity. Everything starts from zero. And so when I got that thing going, I was trying to find somebody who would be a good kind of head of this organization, just mm. like a titular head. You didn't have to do anything, but somebody who was, had a big reputation. And the person who back then in those days was probably the best known Irish business person in the world was called Tony O'Reilly. And he was head of the H.J. Hines Food Company in the United States. And he, um, he was a big rugby player in his day. Uh, and I wrote him a letter and I asked him, would he head up this organization? And, you know, I, I didn't even expect a reply because I was a nobody. <laughs> but he actually wrote back and he said three things. He said, he said, I'm really interested in building networks of Irish people around the world, the Irish diaspora, we call it. Secondly, he said, um, I'm coming to Australia buying newspapers. And thirdly, he said, would you be free for lunch? So I was just bowled over. <laughs> Fantastic. Actually, I was, going to write, I was going to write back and say, nah, I'm busy. But I said, <laughs> no, no, love to meet you for lunch. I met him for lunch. And I worked for him for 21 years. So, uh, I always, so I, 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 he, he got me to get involved with setting up the Ireland funds in Australia and a number of other countries. And then they offered me the job of running the Ireland funds based out of Boston in the United States. So having done about eight years in Sydney, um, having just gotten married, and it was, it was very intrigued by this adventure, we moved to Boston. And I worked then for the Iron Funds for sort of 20 years. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And um, But when I tracked that, why I ended up where I ended up, you know, luck, chance, serendipity played a big role. Just things happened. If I had not written that letter to Tony Riley, I wouldn't be where my life would have been totally different. So I'm a great fan of serendipity. And I'm a great fan that, you know, one introduction, one conversation can change your life. But they don't happen lying in bed or sitting at your desk. They happen when you're in motion. They happen when you do stuff. They happen when you reach out, you break your routines, all of that kind of stuff. And what happened in my period then with the Ireland Funds was to grow it around the U.S. and then around the world. So it's now in 13 countries. It's in 39 cities around the world. Um, it raised a lot of money. 
But it wasn't always like that. The first event of the Ireland Funds has kind of gone into our history, really. It's sort of an apocryphal event. The event was so unsuccessful. The only reason we had a second event a year later was to pay for the first event. It was just such a disaster at the start. And that's why I say nobody started a large organisation. And when you think about it, I mean, Steve Jobs was 21 and his partner, Steve Wozniak, was 27 when they put some bits of a computer together in a garage, you know, in Silicon Valley. And Hewlett mm. and Packard were in a shed. Disney was in a, in a shed. And you look at so many of these companies start from zero. So I find that really intriguing and quite inspiring that, you know, you look at the Stripe Brothers out of Limerick, you know, what yeah. they've done. You look at Ryanair, start with one plane and 15 passengers. And in the non-profit sector, you look at something like men's sheds, which actually came from Australia, with one of the one men's sheds for men to do carpentry and all that kind of stuff. And they're now 450 in Ireland. Our Pieta House with their first walk and now hundreds of thousands do that walk. So I find all of that kind of interesting and inspiring. Um, and, and that's my story. And I'd love to go all the way back uh, to when you were a child. Did you have any dreams or anything you wanted to do when you were a kid? Like, what were you like as a kid? So, uh, you know, we're, we, I had a, a brother and a couple of sisters. My mother was an Irish teacher. Um, and my dad, you know, left school at 14, joined a company, and he left that company age 77. So just a quick 63 years in one company, <laughs> you know. Like, you know, I often think when I think of, talk to my kids now, those days are gone. Yeah. Change in his life was kind of incremental. Mm. Not that much changed, you know. Um, whereas uh, now, you know, change is so exponential. And so somebody said to me the other day, they said, I bet your grandparents were farmers. And I think back, yeah, they all were farmers. And he said, I bet your parents were gardeners. And I said, well, that's right. My dad, you know, my, they, he, he, we had hens and in, in, we lived in Dublin. We had hens in a shed at the back of the house. We'd, he grew, we grew everything. The mum and dad, they, they made the jams. They made everything we ate was made in our garden. So they were gardeners. And then the killer line, my friend said to me, and I bet you buy takeaway. And they, they were right. So in a way, it's an interesting evolution. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, sort of, not change going on I guess during my period growing up and went to a small school in Dublin uh, and would have been visiting back visiting my my mum's her mum my grandmother on the farm in the west of Ireland all the summers were there wonderful experiences bringing in the hay you know running around the beach fishing with my dad all that kind of traditional stuff uh, and and it, you asked me my ambition you know I, I wanted to play rugby for Ireland but of course I was never, never good enough for, for any of that but those sorts of uh, typical dreams. I'm not sure they've changed that much. You know, you, you get carried away on the sports side. And you said you played rugby for a season, was it? Or yeah, in, in France. In yeah, France. I, okay. I, I was in college here. I played uh, the university team and yeah. we had a good team and we had a couple of players who were Lions, you know, British and Irish Lions. Mm. Um, our captain went on, to, it was a guy called Dick Spring and he, he went on to be um, Deputy Prime Minister at Honesta in the Irish government. Um, and, and you know we beat every other university in Ireland and the and in the UK. So we, it was a wonderful experience. The rugby was a wonderful experience because I was a pretty shy kind of um, l- lacking in confidence young fellow going to college, and I found rugby was a, a great way of both making a whole network of new friends from all sorts of different places, but also you know having this team ethos um, and really pushing yourself with an extraordinary coach uh, called Roly Meats. Um, they, they were great. They were great days. Um, and, you know, I look back with them with great fondness. I'm still on the board of the rugby club. I, I always want to contribute and help back to them. 
Mm. And you're currently CEO of the Networking Institute, which, right. which, which I would say is your latest endeavor. Yeah. Um, so what, what is the Networking Institute and what is it all right. about? So um, after having done over 20 years with the Ireland Funds and being in Boston and with four kids and all that kind of stuff, so we decided um, to, to move back to Ireland. So mm. I, was, I was always wanting to head back towards Ireland. It just took me... <laughs> About twenty odd years to, <laughs> to make it back. Um, I was always, uh, you know, fond of this part of the world and, and fond of the UK and fond of Europe. Mm-hmm. Very, very keen on that. And I'd, I'd sort of learnt languages and all that kind of, all those sorts of things. So was was keen to get back here and felt that you know the one thing I'd noticed, I noticed two things. Firstly, working with the likes of uh, Tony O'Reilly and Dan Rooney and all these guys in the Arfans, they were terrific at building networks. They built extraordinary networks. Dan Rooney within the football. He was a fo- owner of a football team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Tony O'Reilly just threw his, his global interest. They built networks all around the world. I was intrigued by that because nobody taught me anything about networking. I just kind of learned on the job. There's an old cliche that says, you are the average of the people you hang around with. You know, if you hang around with people who are good at networking, you, you tend to pick up some of this stuff. And that's that's what happened to me. And when I came back, when I came back to live in Ireland... Um, I got called by lots of institutions and organizations to say, could you come in and could you talk to our people about networking? Because nobody teaches us. Mm. Uh, no school or college teaches us. <clears throat> Companies don't have strategies for it. Everybody thinks it's important, but it's not urgent, so it doesn't get done. Um, we mix up networking and sociability. We think the most sociable person is the best networker. But actually, in reality, people who might be d- described as being introverts can be better than extroverts. Extroverts come across a little bit pushy and maybe a little bit smarmy and sleazy and flicking out business cards late at night in a bar. Whereas introverts are much more sincere and authentic and genuine and they listen, which is the key skill in networking, and they ask questions. Um, so I just, I just sort of found myself sort of really falling into this space and I, and I did a lot of training, but I also wanted to avoid what they call, the Australians call sheep dip training, where an somebody comes into a a training session or a class and they're kind of mildly interested in the topic and they goof off for a few hours and listen to you but does anything change i mean does behavior change and if behavior doesn't change it's all a waste a waste of time and a waste of money for a company so the the, the challenge is is how do you embed uh the sort of stuff that i'm teaching how do you make sure that somebody takes action because as i said if you don't it's this is a waste of time um and so we began to record a lot of stuff that we did. We began to develop online training. We wrote lots of materials. Um, and now, you know, we really are a blended learning organization. In other words, we go in and we run workshops for, for lots of different companies and organizations. But then everybody goes on the online training. We provide them with lots of materials and lots of recommended readings and articles. And then we go back in after a period of time and we basically get the group to prove to us that they've changed something in some way. Um, and so it's, a, it's, it's to get away from what the Aussies call sheep dip training, you know, where you just go in and have a mildly entertaining few hours, but nothing actually happens. Mm. And how do you actually teach networking? Because I know when I was younger, I always thought, like, you know, networking is like a very sociable thing as well, like you said. And I was, I was always fearful to, to network and, you know, reach out to people, but... I'm the complete opposite now. I just want to meet as many people as possible. Yeah. But I'm curious to know, like, how do you teach someone to network? Like, what yeah. are the skills involved? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the number one thing about networking um, is that networking is all about giving, not getting. Right. And most people think, you know, I need to network because I need a job. 
I've got to get a sale, so I'm going to go out there and network, and I'm going to try and find some people who can do something to help me. And I actually, I actually think it's, it's the exact opposite. I mean, I think when, you're, when you meet anybody, you should always have sort of three questions in the back of your mind. And the first question is, what can I do for you, rather than the opposite? And, and the more you give in life, you know, as you all know, the more it comes back to you, the more you get. Mm. So what can I do for you is a great question. Um, another great question is, you know, if you were me, what would you do? In other words, you're asking for advice. You're paying respect and deference to wisdom, sometimes age and experience. And you're listening, which is back to that number one skill in networking is the ability to listen. And then the third question in networking, which is kind of the gold dust question, which is um, who do you know who works in advertising, lives in Brisbane, you know, whatever. But who do you know who is an interesting question? Because what you're really sort of saying to somebody is, are you willing to put your reputation on the line to make an introduction for me? And so much in life is about referrals. Eighty percent of jobs, you know, come through referrals. I mean, most people don't get their jobs from an ad in the newspaper. Mm. They get their job because they've built up a reputation. They've become known, um, and their people are attracted to them or know about them. So now you're into this whole area of your your, your reputation, you know, and what people think of you, what people say about you when you're not in the room, and and, and this whole area of, and it's, I don't even like the expression, but it explains it pretty well. Your personal brand. You know, your personal brand. So, you know, and many people say, oh, I hate that. I, I, I hate, I don't have a personal brand. But actually, not having a personal brand is having a personal brand. And everybody has one, whether you like it or not. The question is, do you want to determine what your brand is? Or do you want other people to determine it? And when you let other people determine what your brand is, it generally is not the brand that you're happy with or like or comfortable with. So this notion of finding what's out what's true and authentic about yourself and letting other people know is important. So, so it's interesting because, you see, I would have come from a generation from when I finished school and college and started into the workforce, I would have had the traditional advice that every parent gives or gave in those days, which is work hard, keep your head down, and keep out of trouble. Probably the worst career advice you could give any youngster. Because if you do that, you get ignored. Because there's two types of work. There's visible work and invisible work. And if all you do is keep your head down and keep out of trouble and do invisible work and nobody knows what you're doing and what you're contributing to the organization, you will get overlooked. And that's the harsh reality. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the technical skills that they needed to get their job in the first place as they progress through their career become less important because everybody has them. And you can't compete on what everybody has. And relationships become more important. And there's kind of a crossover. Um, And we chatted before about um, Harvey Coleman, an American, who's written a lot on this topic and about networking and career progress. And he has a kind of an outrageous theory. It's called the PIE theory, P-I-E. And the PIE theory is, um, he says P stands for performance. And he makes this outrageous statement that you're, Career progress depends 10% on how well you do your job, which sounds totally and utterly daft. Surely how well you do your job is everything. It's like 90%, at least 90%. And he says, no, he said, he said, you know, doing a great job now is mandatory. You know, it's the minimum. Everybody does a great job. He said, we're not talking about getting on the ladder. We're talking about going up the ladder. 
That's a different thing altogether. He said you get paid on performance. You get promoted on what other people think of your potential. So now he's introducing those two little pesky words, other people. In other words, people's judgment about you. And so the reality is your progress in life and your career will be determined by people who are making a judgment about you and you're not in the room. You're not in the room. So what does that mean? That means you need to have built those relationships, your reputation. You need to become known, not famous. You need to become a go-to person for something. You have to craft this personal identity, personal reputation, so that people have a view on you. And the funny thing about reputation is that, you know, we all know your reputation follows you around. But actually, in some cases, your reputation precedes you. People have a view on you before they even meet you. And we're all very judgmental. We all make judgments about people incredibly quickly. So what we're saying here is that not only do you need a mentor as you develop your career, but you also need a sponsor. So a mentor is somebody who talks to you. A sponsor is somebody who talks about you. And there are two interesting distinctions. You need people who have your back, who will talk about you when you're not in the room. And I think a lot of people miss all of that when they're thinking about career trajectory and this notion of just keep your head down, do a great job. And then they wonder, how come this other person, who I don't think is nearly as good as I am, is getting picked for promotion, etc.? And as Harvey Coleman says, the future leadership of your organization will not be by unknown people. So you have to become known. I say you have to become known, not famous. You know, Kardashians are famous, but you don't need to be like that. But you've got to become known. So this is his performance element of his pie theory. Um, the other two elements, and, and, and performance is only 10% of your career progress. The I stands for your image, uh, what people think of you. What are you known for? Um, and that's really important. And your performance can help create an image about you. Do a great job, that helps your image. But then the E of the pie theory, and the E is 60% of career progress, depends on E, which stands for exposure. So now it's a question, who's seen you in action? Who's seen you perform? Who's seen you in meetings? You know, are you seen as an optimistic person who brings solutions? Do you bring problems? And exposure is interesting because it means you've got to become good. You've got to pick up some skills. One of them is being good at public speaking. Um, A lot of people hate that. One of the great hates in life is public speaking. There's a guy called Andy Lapata wrote an interesting book called um, And Death Came Third. And he did a study and he found that the three great fears in life in third place was actually death. In second place, walking into a room where you know nobody. And people's greatest fear in life is public speaking. But I think if you if you put an effort in that space and become better and more competent uh, at public speaking, it will draw people to you. It will create and help your reputation. Um, you will inspire uh, people. Um, and I say you will attract people. And it'll give you a great competitive advantage because that's what we're all looking for. You see, life is a game of inches. The difference between success and failure, becoming first and second. We see it in sport all the time. It's minuscule. It's absolutely tiny. So you need every advantage you can get. And being good at networking, I think, can be the great difference maker. Mm -hmm. It really can differentiate you from the competition. And like you said a lot of things there that I 100% agree on. And, you know, when you said networking is very important, but let's just say you're young 
how do you actually do networking? Like what what practical steps should someone do in yeah. their 20s to network and to build a network? Because it's kind of intimidating. So like what kind totally. of steps should people take to initiate, you know, start networking and, you know, yeah. So I guess what do you need to do to network? Yeah, I think one of the interesting challenges about networking is to bring diversity into your mm. network. So, you know, and you're a good example of this, but given your background, I mean, when I grew up in this city of Dublin, it was male, pale and stale. It was not a very cosmopolitan, uh, international sort of place. Um, if you look at the statistics today, I think it's really interesting to compare, say, the United States. So 12% of the United States were not born in the United States. In Ireland, it's 17%. In Dublin, it's 25%. But of the working age population of Dublin, it's 33%. So we have an intensely, intensely... Um, multinational, international, cosmopolitan city that we're working in. But here's the question. Does your network reflect the diversity of the economy you operate in, the society you live in? And to most people, the answer is no. And all the research from the, the McKinsey's and the Bain's and all these great companies says that if you, don't, if you don't reflect the diversity of the economy you operate in, the society you live in, you underperform. So back to your question, what are the things that you need to do? I mean, you need to... Uh, really work at building diversity into your network. It's, there's a concept called homophily. Homophily is the tendency we all have to hang around with people just like us. Um, and nothing wrong with it, but we have a tendency to do that. But the problem with doing that is that not only do you know these people very, very well, you know what they think, you know who they know, you know what they think, and that doesn't help You know, building diversity. So I think... Uh, first point, this important recognizing the importance of having diversity in your network, which means you got to become good at talking to strangers. So most people really hate talking to strangers. Um, so this would be my second thing: is you got to find get make make yourself comfortable with talking to strangers. And you, you know, you can't walk down Blackrock High Street today and say, "Look, I was just listening to this guy talking, and could we have a conversation?" And you're a stranger. No, that's not going to work. But you have to change your routines. And, and mix up your life and do different things where you will uh, you will encounter people different from you. And you know, we teach our kids, don't talk to strangers, right? <laughs> yeah. But statistically, our kids are at more danger from friends and family than they are from strangers. So being open to and seeking out difference and diversity, I think is an important, another sort of tip, if you like. Um, becoming good at asking and I often think Irish people are maybe a little bit weak in that area of asking. Um, I mean, seeing how the Americans operate and the Irish operate, I think we often have our head down, the count fui, as we call it in Irish, uh, our head down, not looking somebody straight in the eye, and just being good at asking. Um, you know, having worked in philanthropy and fundraising for a long time, at the end of the day, if you don't ask, you don't get. So being a little bit more, and brazen might be too strong a word, but a little bit more forward and being willing to ask people. And the amazing thing is, you know, very often people, when they're asked, are happy to help, you know. You know, this, this notion of, you know, uh, how can I help you, you know, who do you know who, those sorts of questions, are, they're asking questions. So I think becoming good at asking uh, becomes an important part of this networking. I think um, this notion of we, we, serendipity, luck, chance that we talked about earlier, uh, seeing, believing that actually you can make luck happen for you is an interesting notion. Is luck like just a bolt of lightning from the blue, random chance, you know, you've no control? Or is luck, I like to think of it as like a gentle wind at your back that's always there. Mm. 
and you can grasp it every so often. You can make it work for you. I think that's an interesting, an interesting, an interesting thought and, and philosophy, if you like. But it doesn't happen lying in bed. It doesn't happen sitting at your desk. It happens when you're in motion. It happens when you break your routines. It happens when you talk to strangers. It happens when you do different things, read different things, watch different things. Just, you know, opening up to the world, if you like. Um, you'd be amazed at how luck happens. So you're saying that luck happens not necessarily just by like spontaneous people that happens because you're always in motion. You're always trying to network with people. You're always reading books. And then these opportunities come. come ha- I, I think someone said this before. And he was given an example of a gold mine or a gold miner and or a, a free, a very high class uh, free diver in the sea. And basically, this guy is world class at what he does. And then this guy, let's say Johnny, he found some gold in the sea. So he's going to go to this gold uh, free diver and he's going to ask him and he's going to get a share. And you can say that's luck, but not really because he's the world class at what he does and he. You know, he put himself in that opportunity. Yeah. So I think like that example really stuck with me as well. Yeah. I probably explained it very wrongly, but um. <laughs> no, no, I think you explained it perfectly. I mean, I think the sentence, the bit, the in the bit in the middle, which resonated with me, is you, you said something like put himself in the position mm. whereby something happened. So it's that piece of putting yourself in the position, mm. being mentally open to the notion of luck and serendipity. And by the way, you know, bad luck happens. Mm. We all have experienced that and sometimes just really yeah. crappy things happen. Of course. But, you know, um, I think if you if you watch and listen to a lot of these guys who talk about um, personal development, all they will all pretty much buy into this, this concept. Mm. I'm curious to know, because we talked about early career and like how to actually get started in the career. So, like, what is your advice to a college student who's about to graduate? He's very smart, ambitious, wants to do well in the world, and he's about to graduate and he's about to enter the real world. So, what advice would you give to such a student, and what advice should they ignore? Yeah, so um, I, I think it's always quite a, quite a good idea as you segue out of student life, which is segueing out of school and then student life, and suddenly, you know, in a way, to an extent, you're free and you've got your own decisions to make. And I think joining a good organization and seeing that first move as a learning experience, mm. um, I, you know, and you, you can learn a lot from being in some of those great corporations, some of those big institutions. You can learn about institutional life and corporate life. Where you go after that, who knows? I mean, here's the reality is, I mean, you know, you're going to live a long, long time. I mean, kids born today, half of them are going to live to over 100. Yeah. It's going to be a long, yeah. long life. So I think you have to look at it in that broad, very broad sort of scheme of things. And things are going to be dramatically different. Mm. So if I said to you, if I, you and I were chatting 10 years ago and I said to you, um, I was in my Uber on my iPhone booking an Airbnb in BlackRock, the only word you would have understood is the word BlackRock because those three things didn't exist. So the question is, if we're chatting now, you know, what are the three things we could mention now that, you know, don't exist now, but will be commonplace, you know, mm. 10 years from now. So so the challenge um, for people like you making those decisions, etc., is, is, you know, how do you handle exponential change when the companies you, you, you may join now won't exist? I mean, companies last about 20 years. CEOs last about seven years. People in the C-suite last less, you know. So, so it's handling the change becomes a skill. Um, and, you know, as uh, Peter Drucker, the American management consultant, said, to create the future, you have to be the enemy of today. And Charles Darwin, who's a British anthropologist, who said, it's not the strongest of the species that survives, 
or even the most intelligent it's those most able to handle change so building those characteristics of resilience and grit and determination and being able to take the knocks i think is a really important thing and and building also soft skills I, I think that's going to become more and more important if you if you watch and listen to the googles and the linkedins and the management people saying you know they more and more demand soft skills ai robotics automation is going to do an awful lot of the mundane things and even some of the quite smart things so you're going to find you know those industries like law accounting finance it, it, the key word now is disruption everything's going to be disrupted so we're you know you're going to be working for companies that don't exist yet. You're going to be working on problems that nobody knows about. Um, and so just having those set of personal skills that will allow you to be flexible enough, I think that's really important. And I, I sometimes worry that universities uh, are, are much more focused on developing, developing hard technical skills. And I'm not diminishing them in any way. They're critical. But actually don't do some of the soft skill training, which is what corporates are asking for. Um, and it's one I, I speak often with to groups of students and also with employers. And I was doing one up in Queens the other day, and and the employers were basically saying, you know, the product which is being developed now is not exactly what we want. In fact, I spent a day teaching in the National University of Singapore a couple of years ago, and they have a thing called the Center for Future Ready Graduates. This is the number one university in Asia, number twenty in the world. It's an outstanding institution. And they have the Center for Future Ready Graduates. Just the actual title of the center ex- sort of explains the product, the, the, the problem. In, in fact, what they're saying is the students are not future ready. And it's all about building resilience, soft skills, determination, grit, all that kind of stuff. So they recognize that problem. Um, and Singapore is an instinct sort of society where they do look around corners and they anticipate issues. And they have this whole center in this extraordinary institution recognizing the problem and trying to have interventions to help resolve it hmm. and you mentioned skills when you were talking about it and like one things one of the things that i'm doing in my 20s i want to focus on building skills not necessarily hard hardware skills or hard skills but soft skills as well but i'm very curious to know like what are the kind of skills that people in their 20s should focus on the most um like it might be reading writing whatever like i'm curious to know like what's your perspective on skills and what skills should people focus on so, I mean, I think um, you, you have to have the hard technical skills. I mean, mm. let's assume that they're a given, you know, you're, you know whether it's coding or whether it's uh, software development, whatever. Yeah. Let's assume that you're good at that. Then, then what are the skills that you need? And I think, you know, things like communication skills become really important. The, um, what I hear people saying now is that, um, I'm not dishing on them, but millennials now have become so used to um, interacting electronically mm. um that they've become good at talking and bad at speaking if you see mm. the distinction in other words you know they will talk electronically they will connect but they actually won't pick up the telephone they won't go over and have a conversation they want to obs- avoid all that kind of stuff and i think there's some warning lights in that um technology could starch the life out of our of our, of our societies in some ways um, you can live very atomistic, um, lonely lives. I think the big crisis of our times, which is increasing, I think, is loneliness. Um, and I think that technology, which was designed to bring us all together, is actually having the opposite effect. So I think we have to, you know, at our peril, uh, embrace. So what I, when I run the courses with companies, I, I, I say, look, you've got to be high tech. 
but you've got to be high touch. And I think we're veering towards the high tech side maybe maybe too much. And maybe that's an old dog speaking here. But I think that, you know, you miss out if you miss that whole high touch dimension. I mean we're we're human beings, you know. We're we crave, you know, human connectivity. We're social animals. We're social animals and we want to belong. I think a really interesting concept and it's coming out of the west coast a bit um this notion of it's called dibs diversity mm. inclusion and belonging there's a woman called pat waters who's got some interesting ted talks on this and she's a former linkedin uh lnd hr person and i i re i now see more and more of this notion people want to belong i mean in the old days you know maybe less so now people belong to a church uh, people belong to a place, people belong to a football team, uh, people belong to a, an orchestra, whatever. People like to belong, um, and it gives them a sense of purpose and gives them a sense of identity. And I think we've got to watch that we don't starch that out of societies. Um, and I think it's a, power, it's a very powerful thing. I've done a, most of my... A lot of the work I do is, is helping diasporas networks so or countries connect with their diasporas, and that's all about belonging, you know? Lithuanians around the world wanting to know what's going on in Lithuania, want to belong to them. And because of technology and communications, people can connect instantaneously, um, intensely, constantly. They know now what's happening within seconds, you know. I have friends in Melbourne who send me, send me a text in the morning telling me about something that's happening in Ireland around the corner from me in Black Rock before I'm out of bed in the morning, mm. you know, because they're up earlier. Um, that's a new dynamic, and so, you know, there's some really interesting things going on in that whole diaspora area. It's now more important what you do than where you are. That's an interesting notion. Now, what you do is becomes important rather than where you are. It can be anywhere because now with technology, you can be anywhere. And you can be, you know, running businesses in the back and beyond. And, uh, but they could be global, global organizations. So I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's different dynamics coming about in that whole area. Um, and countries realize that the people who used to live and were born in their country have gone and lived overseas. In the old days, we used to call them, they were lost actors. Now they're national assets. And companies are, countries are now putting in place strategies to connect with these people. So I saw it, with, a, the, with of course, with the Ireland Funds, but also with IDA and the Enterprise Ireland Chorus Troctola, that our Irish people and Irish-related people, are people with an interest in Ireland all around the world, they were a resource for this country, a phenomenal resource. And when you think about it, 10 million people have left Ireland historically through the centuries. Um, so we now, and that's the bad news at one level, but the good news is we now have a global network of affluence and influence in many cases, um, which is a resource for Ireland. And certainly in my jobs, we use that. We use them, we used to call them tipping agents. These are people who could nudge a deal in Ireland's direction. And as I said earlier, lots of deals are 50-50. You know, lots of deals were really... So you needed this little, this little nudge factor, which would put a, put a deal to, in Ireland's way. And we used those networks, back to networks, around the world. We built those networks, and they became an extraordinary sort of asset for Ireland. And it became a sort of a subtle difference between the state and the nation. Like the state is lines on a map. The nation is a global notion. So Ireland's been strong at this. Israel's been very strong at this. Um, you know, China's been strong at this. India has been extraordinary in this area. The Indian diaspora now, just extraordinary to watch them. We Indians are now running some of the great tech companies of the world. Oh, yeah, they're all CEOs. <laughs> they're all CEOs. Yeah. They've come out of the technology set up. And a million Indians have moved to the United States since the year 2000. 
highly educated, mm. highly paid, you know, 400,000 Silicon Valley, one in four startups is an Indian. I mean, but they're connecting back to India like never before. You look at Indra Nooyi, who is the CEO of Pepsi, an Indian woman, um, went to America, elite education, joined Bain, a client company, Pepsi, hired her, and she became head of Pepsi. That's interesting. But here's the thing that's really interesting. She was head of the U.S.-India Business Council. So what she was doing was really facilitating U.S.-India business links and connections and investment. And so now it's this notion of the Indian and this notion of global Indianness. I think India has changed its nation brand in 15 years through its diaspora. When you think like that, that's really fascinating. And Modi, the prime minister there now, when he became prime minister a couple of elections ago, the first thing he did was go to Madison Square Garden and he put a 24,000 Indians going nuts uh, with their prime minister there. Um, then he went to Melbourne Cricket Ground, 100,000. Then he went to Wembley Stadium, 100,000. And he has developed this notion of global Indianness because up until about 2002, there was a very bad relationship between India and our diaspora. In fact, there was a relationship. India hated their diaspora and vice versa. But, but in that year, Manmohan Singh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, um, he instituted a high-level commission of the Indian diaspora. They did a study. It took them two years. You can read the study. It's online. It's about 700 pages, but you can read the executive summary. And what the diaspora basically said to India is that you're excessively bureaucratic and corrupt. Uh, and India brought about some dramatic changes. They introduced uh, the Ministry of Overseas Indian Affairs. They start an annual conference in January every year where 3,000 Indian CEOs go back. Um, they introduced a new passport, an OCI, the Overseas Citizen of India. Um, you know, they did all sorts of different changes that they, they dropped their in, lic import licensing system and they... they changed the way the world looks at them and they've changed the relationship between the diaspora and there's this extraordinary sense of uh, pride in many ways in India. So lots of countries want to do what Ireland's done, India, Israel um, you know, other countries uh, I did a job last year for Copenhagen, which is a city and they, they have a thing called Copenhagen Goodwill Ambassadors all around the world who promote Copenhagen for investment, tourism, trade, education, conferences so countries have this resource, which, of course, segues directly into building global networks. That's what it's about. And, like, how do you think countries should, like, build these global networks? Like, that's, cause that's kind of your job, isn't it? Well, yeah. you were involved in that field. Like, what was your process in doing that? Well, I mean, I think um, companies, first of all, have to recognize that they have a resource. And sometimes that resource uh, is very successful and sometimes mm. it's not. Sometimes it's vulnerable. Sometimes members of your country are, have difficulties and challenges overseas. Um, and certainly, Ireland's got an interesting like two-tier policy. One is trying to identify the most successful Irish around the world, connect mm. with them, and that's all fine. But also looking after those who have issues and problems. So the Emigrant Support Programme, which is part of a government budget in the Department of Foreign Affairs, they actually spend about 12 million euros a year funding these people around the wow. world, helping these agencies. And there might be people who have homelessness problems or mental health issues or ageing problems or are in prison or have issues. And so, you know, there's lots of Irish organisations around the world, so they support them. So I think that's a very 
good gesture by by uh, by the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Irish government. The um, the diaspora is part of our constitution. We recognise mm. the diaspora, um, and then the other approach countries gen- tend to take is both a public and public and private. In other words, there's public um, governmental initiatives. Ireland, you know, tends to look at the role of government in the diaspora uh, is to be a facilitator rather than, than an implementer. And different governments have different approaches here. So in other words, Ireland sort of facilitates, supports, uh, creates an enabling environment to allow lots of organisations to flourish. So the GAA have about 600 Gaelic football clubs around the world. Kyoto's Kyotori have about 500 Irish music um, organisations around the world. Mm. Um, the one I was with, the Ireland Funds, are around the world. Um, and these are all you know, privately run organisations. They're not dependent upon government support. So I think getting that public-private uh, balance right and getting the successful vulnerable balance right is a really interesting model. There's over 100 countries, regions and cities now trying to figure out how do we engage our diaspora. And Ireland's been one of the leaders in this space. You know, I, I work a lot in Africa, I work in the Middle East, and the, the countries there all say the same thing. You know, can we? Can you teach us to do what Ireland's been doing over the decades and over the centuries? Um, and I think we can. I think we can create Ireland as a, the world leader in this space. And if we do, the world will beat a path to our door. I mean, wow. I, was in, um, I was in Tunis last week, and I spent three days training the Libyan government on diaspora engagement. Uh, just before that, I, I was in Lithuania um, running a course for the Department of Foreign Affairs there to train their embassy staff and their ambassadors into this area. Um, you know, there's just lots of places trying to figure this one out. And we are recognized as being good in this space. Uh, traditionally, Ireland had a huge role in helping African countries. And we had our missionaries went to Africa and we our priests and nuns went out and did extraordinary work schooling, educating, and healthcare. We don't have priests and nuns going out anymore, but I believe this is the next phase of this. The next phase is us working with African countries, helping them connect with their diaspora. Hmm. There are more Malawi doctors in Manchester than in Malawi. 50% of African graduates live outside of Africa. So they're all trying to figure out how do we connect? whether it's Ethiopia or whether it's Egypt or whatever, they're all trying to figure out how, to, how do they put in place policies, programs, projects to connect with their diaspora. Because the big shifts of money in the world today are actually remittances, people sending money home. It's about $700 billion a year, and that's what goes through the banking system, and we reckon it's probably a trillion dollars a year. So that what you have is people, people working in the US or Dubai or Australia sending money home. It's a massive transfer of money. And, of course, that, that goes straight into consumption, goes straight into different projects. And so everybody's aware of, aware of this potential. It's part of the sustainable development goals of the UN to reduce the cost of the transfers of this money. Um, but it is a phenomenal shift of money that people aren't really aware of. You see, in the year 1990, there were 150 million people living outside the country they were born in. That's now 275 million and even though probably the most toxic word in the English language is the word migrant, the reality of migrants is that they are the great starters of business. Migrants are the great, um, you know, 
they're highly educated in many cases. You know, migrants contribute enormously to the countries in which they go to. Migrants often arrive, get a job, and the first thing they do is pay tax to the to the, the home country. So, so uh, you know, that whole area, unfortunately, given events over the last few years, uh, migrant has got a pretty negative. It conjures up images of kind of jungles in Calais, caravans of people trawling up through Central America, or you know, tragic babies on beaches, you know, in Turkey or somewhere. So, so that's the image. But but the reality is that actually diasporas are really much more positive image and diasporas contribute enormously both to their to their host country but increasingly back to their home country and um, so that's a that's an area where Ireland can be a total world leader in this space for teaching training research and consultancy it's a I always say it's an opportunity hidden in plain sight for this country and uh, some fascinating stuff going on yeah, like this is this is all news to me. I was never aware of like this diaspora and like how Ireland is such so good at doing this. So, mm. well, thank you for that. Mm. And I'm very curious um, to know like what does you because you're doing a lot. And I'm curious to know like what's your kind of like typical week or typical day. Well, you know, like? um, so I mean, I <laughs> I just personally I got married late and uh, you know had um, you know I still have kids, uh, still a kid in college and. Mm. Uh, uh, one finishing now, finishing uh, this year, and then another one, just starting another one in in uh, film school in Berlin. So I have a bit of runway in front of me there, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. Um, but I'm always, I've always been curious. Uh, I've no, I've no interest in this notion of retirement. I just, <laughs> I just think that's a, just a shocking kind of, you know, late nineteenth century phenomenon of you know you 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 know you retire. I think you, you retire and you expire, you know. Um so uh so I'm in my third act, if you know what I mean. Uh and the interesting thing in the, the one of the great new stories of our time is that we are living now about thirty years longer than our great grandparents. Mm. So, you know, fifty percent of the people in Dublin who reach sixty will reach ninety. So people are leaving professional careers. I mean, law firms, you could be out at 55 or 60, and you might have 30 years to go. So you've got to ask yourself a question. What, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do in my third act? You know, and many people have houses and the kids are gone and they've got all that kind of stuff. And, and those who just, re, and, and there are, I've, I definitely saw it living in the States, um, people actually just wither away. Uh, because they don't have a sense of purpose. They're not quite sure, you know, they've given their entire life to their corporate world and then suddenly that explodes, it's gone and brutally the phone doesn't ring, nobody cares and as one of my old bosses in America said, cemeteries are full of irreplaceable executives, you know. Um, Life moves on. So you need to be, I always think the company spent a lot of money preparing people when they join a company and getting them ready. And don't spend any money helping them transition into their third act. I have a pal, Ed Kelly, who's got a company here in Dublin called, called, called The Third Act. And it's all about helping people transition into this somewhat difficult period, you know, where um, you, you have to figure out, what am I going to do for this period of time? I, I think we're going to see an explosion of activity of people in their third act re-engaging. There's a, a whole phenomenon of people uh, being re-employed, going back into the workforce, having left it. Um, you know, the attraction retention of talent is the big challenge of our day. You know, where are we going to find people to, for these organisations? So I think I think people are going to re-engage. You know, and I think that's what they want to do. 
Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon, which is a first world problem. Didn't exist before because most people were dead at sixty, you know. Hmm. But now they're not. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Look, like I, you know, I used to believe that you know, oh, you finish at fifty-five and that's it. Like but we, like especially people, like you said, who are born now or like in their twenties, they're going to live to like about a hundred years, ninety years of age. So like we're going to live like a very long time. So like it's an exciting time to do as many things as possible just to try different careers and just you know have a good meaningful life <laughs> yeah i think that's nice and like um do you do you have any like bad recommend do you hear bad recommendations in your field so like advice from other professionals within your area of expertise that give bad advice no do you, no? no i mean I, I you know because it can only be bad advice until somebody takes it and then it doesn't work out and then often there's other things come into come into play um, but I do, I mean, I think, I don't know about bad advice, but I think good advice is to have characteristics um, like being curious, mm. you know. And I think we live in a sort of a strangely uncurious world where a lot of people aren't very curious. Where a lot of people don't start sentences with who, what, when, where, why and how. Um, where people are, you know, all they really care about is themselves. And, um, and I think that's a pity. I mean, I think it was Tim Cook of Apple said, you know, curiosity equals innovation. So, um, and I, I might have touched on earlier that, I mean, the number one skill in networking is to be a good listener. But we live in a world where most people don't listen. Most people only listen to prepare what they're going to say next, not to hear what the other person is saying. So you need to look at listening as, as not a form uh, of, being, of weakness or of not being an expert. You've got to look at listening as a form of activity. And that um, if you listen in a generative sense, listen not only to what somebody is saying, but what they're going to say next, listen like an interviewer, uh, you know, that becomes very, a very powerful tool. I mean, I think it was Richard Branson said, you know, you learn nothing when, when, you're, when you're talking, you learn everything when you're listening. And, and you know, it's a very simple thing. Um, and yet we all want to wow people all the time with what we know and who we know. We just want to wow people. And we tend to be narcissistic listeners. So if Dom, you said to me, I'm thinking of buying a car. And my answer is, I bought one last week. The guy wanted 20,000, but I gave him 10,000. It's only done 50,000 miles. I think I got a great deal. You're not interested in me and my car. You wanted to talk about your car. But I've hijacked your conversation and turned it to be all about me. So we are these, we are, we tend to, lots of people tend to be narcissistic listeners. It's all about them. So, um, it's, and it's an interesting thing. If you ask people, who do you know who's a really good listener? People often struggle to think. So I think that that's a fantastic skill, is to be a great listener. And it's much, uh, on a, you know, it's much kind of held in not great repute in, in some, some instances, I think. And people don't realize how often um, they over-talk. You know the old line about you have one mouth and two ears using that proportion, but <laughs> but it's a cliche, but probably true. <laughs> and do you have any absurd or unusual habits that you like to do? <laughs> um, now that uh, going public with those things would be really pushing it. Um, I uh, I do like to try and you know exercise. So I try to I usually swim every day. Um, mm. I swim in the summer outdoors, but uh, not, not now. I swim in a, in a pool, like I was there this morning. And I, I find that, to me, that's my, um, uh, it's kind of my TM, Transcendental Meditation kind of period. I find lots of ideas come to me. Um, I listen to lots of stuff uh, if I'm in the gym. 
Um, I walked on Leary Pier in the summers most mornings. Um, you know, I just, and I have an intense um, sense of gratitude, you know, just walking in, the, just so lucky to be alive, um, you know, to be in this terrific city um, and to be walking down a pier in the morning with the sun coming up. What a joy. I mean, and why I love all that kind of stuff and I cycle a fair bit, they're free. I mean, they don't cost you a penny, you know. They're all free. They're there in front of you, you know, and um, take advantage of them. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's good for you. And do you have any other habits besides exercise? Or is, like, is that like a stable in your day? Like you have to exercise, you have to go for a walk. Yeah. Do you have any habits um, that you do on a regular basis, like things you must do in your day to feel, you know, satisfied and happy? You no, know, except that I try to be, I try to read sort of being an omnivorous reader in mm. other words you know read lots of things um you know i might i might be in a in a at the airport somewhere and i'll pick up a, a magazine on furniture or gardening or something just or, or i like fashion you know fashion magazines or, or yeah. interiors and things just purely i love looking at the visuals you know <laughs> and um there's all these other worlds out there i mean i've no interest in bird watching but occasionally i might grab a magazine about bird watching just because I think we tend to live in these silos, you know, and we're consumed by our silos. And we don't realize there's this whole other world out there. And you have to push yourself outside of your own kind of slightly blinkered comfort zone. Mm. So I think that, you know, this notion of doing different things, going different places, you know, um, there's so many interesting things going on that we just don't do. And I, if I had more time, I'd do more of those. Mm. And you mentioned books and that you're a vicious reader. Do you have any, like... Do any like three to five books come to mind that you often gifted or recommended to others? So like, do you, what's your kind of most recommended or most gifted book, I guess? <laughs> well, you know, one book I've always got a, got a, a joy out of uh, looking at again and recommending it is actually Dale Carnegie, um, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. So, I mean, he wrote this back way back in the 30s. And, um, but he said a few things which... I, I think so interesting. Some of these things are timeless. They just, uh, they just continue on. So here's some of the things he said. He said, the sweetest sound that anybody ever heard was the sound of their own name. I mean, how simple is that? He said, the smile on your face means more than the clothes on your back. He said, a really good question uh, beats a really good comment. He said, you know, the person you're talking to is a hundred times more interested in themselves and their wants and their issues than in your wants and your issues. He said, when you talk about yourself, uh, to somebody they think you're a bore when you let them talk about themselves they think you're a great conversationist and he said the boil on the back of the neck of the person you're speaking to means more to them than six earthquakes in india and lots more slightly cheesy chintzy kind of stuff but actually pretty good you know hasn't changed that much um you know and there's a few of those people who wrote the stuff back then which I think is um, is really interesting. Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, is another mm. interesting book from that period. Um, and really, what you're seeing today is these mega mega kind of guys going around the world. They're just reheating that soup, you know. They're just repackaging that stuff. And it actually, I think, often comes down to um, to one sentence, which is, "I found the enemy, and it's me." <laughs> so you know, and and there's a gigantic industry built up around that. So I, I, I do like that book. I've always loved um, Hans Rosling, who's a wonderful Swedish guy who just passed away a couple of years ago. He's got a great book called Factfulness, Factfulness. which is fascinating. 
I think Bill Gates said it was his number one book last year to read. Um, so there's a few of these classics out there uh, which are worth reading, and then um, but then I you know I have a whole mix of stuff that I read. Mm. And if you had one superpower, what superpower would you choose? If I wanted to have a superpower yeah. that I don't have at the moment, yeah, I'd love to be a musician. A musician? Yeah, I'd love to play a musical instrument. So I never did. It wasn't part of our family. And I just look at, listen to, uh, you know, pianists or, you know, violin players or guitarists. And I just say, I'd love to be able to do that. Mm. And I miss that chance. It's probably too late now, don't you think? <laughs> well, you never know. You never I know. I think it is. <laughs> yeah. And I just have a few more rapid fire questions because I know you're short on time. Yeah. So I just, um, so if there was a billboard and on this billboard, you could display any message in the world. So anyone in the world can see this billboard. So the message would be portrayed to millions and billions of people. Oh, right. Yeah. What would you put up on that billboard? Do you know, I remember when I was a kid reading a thing called the Reader's Digest. Did you ever hear that? It was a little kind of a funny little publication that came out every month but it was gigantic and one of the sections in sections in there was called laughter the best medicine so i'm just always been fascinated and interested about laughter and humor and the use of laughter and humor in fact last summer and, and this is an example of doing something quirky different odd strange nutty uh and i have a bucket list every year and the bucket list last year number one on it was to perform in uh, a Dublin nightclub uh, a comedy, comedy routine <laughs> yeah. so, so I did a course in the, the Gaiety Theatre um, they have a training course for 10 weeks, 2 hours every Wednesday night with a group of people who are extremely diverse and not the sort of people I would normally meet and I was very unsure of them when I met them first but after 10 weeks we were hugging and kissing they were the <laughs> best people I ever met but we had to, I had to perform a, a routine in a nightclub and it was it had to have 21 laughs in seven minutes to graduate. Uh, and that's what I did. So I, you know, that was pushing myself outside my comfort zone and doing something a little bit different. And I think maybe that answers your question. Mm. And what is your definition of chasing passion? Chasing passion? Chasing passion. You know, sometimes chasing passion is a bit like a dog chasing a car. You know, what would it ever do if it got to the car? You know, it's the chase is more important than actually getting to the car, you know. So so I think, um, you know, I, I, I spend an awful lot of time you know, in a directional sense trying to achieve certain things, but very often fall short. So I think the race and the chase is as important as the end result. Well, I think it's an excellent opportunity to finish up the podcast. But before we do, is there anything else that you'd like to mention, say, ending it all? No, I mean, uh, you know, in a cheap commercial sense, uh, anybody interested in the, the sort of things I've been talking about in the courses, you know, go on the Networking Institute and, or give me a holler or send me a text or something. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the future uh, for a lot of people, people like you and all, I think just, just bear in mind the importance of soft skills in the future. It'll be a real differentiator. And I think we're lucky in Ireland where I think uh, we're social animals, we're a sociable kind of nation. Uh, we like, we like uh, interaction with people. Uh, and we also like, you know, that word, we like to have a bit of crack. Kingsley, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dom. Good luck. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the show notes on the website chasingpassion.ie. That is chasingpassion.ie. If you're looking to support the podcast in any way, I would really appreciate if you could leave a short review on Apple Podcast, and this would literally take about 60 seconds and it will help the podcast grow in so many ways. 
You can find the link to Apple Podcasts in the episode description or just simply search Chasing Passion on Apple Podcast, and it should pop right up. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. It means the world to me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, just thank you so much and have a great day.